Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, chapter 10, 12, 13, and 31. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who, who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so I don't know if anybody else is in this boat, but I, thank you, uh, I really love food. Anybody else uh, agree with that? Uh, and if you uh, know me, uh, I have a particular weakness for sweets. So I really love cake and cookies and donuts, uh, etc. Um, and somewhere, uh, actually the other thing too, not only do I love sweets, whenever someone says something is too sweet, my brain can't fathom it. It is rare that I ever think something is too sweet. I really love sugar. But as you could imagine, um, in order for me to not crush my, uh, my health, I've had to figure out ways to avoid eating crazy amounts of sugar because it's really something I would love to do. If the Lord would just gift me the ability to eat tons of sugar without any effects, that would be amazing. But in the end, he's not going to do that for me. So because of that, I've had to discover the ways in which I'm going to control the amount of sweets that I might eat. Uh, one of the realities for, for me in our household is that I know where my self-control lies. Um, meaning, I know that if I don't buy the Oreos, I won't eat the Oreos. But if the Oreos are purchased and then are in my apartment, I will be eating them by the sleeve. So for me, the trick is I can't buy the Oreos. And I usually am pretty good at not buying those Oreos. Once they're in the house, it's over. Actually, the other day, or the other day, maybe a week ago, I don't know if you guys have seen, but there's a new Krispy Kreme on 104th and 3rd. Have you seen this? Number one, how weird is that, that there's a Krispy Kreme in East Harlem? But the other thing, too, is I was over there, and I was talking about maybe getting, getting some donuts, and my wife's response was, just get half a dozen, because then it'll be easier to self-control. I was like, nope, that's not going to happen, because once they're like, who eats one Krispy Kreme donut? It would have been the entire half dozen. All that just to say. Right? We need to know where our lack of self-control exists. And as a result, we then begin to consider what it means to put in certain boundaries and guidelines in order to control these kinds of impulses that we might have. Because a lack of self-control can have 
significant impact on our lives. And that's not just, uh, you know, something Christians would assume to be true. This is really the case. I mean, every world religion and every philosophy has a a rich heritage of self-control that pervades their theology and their worldview and philosophy because we know that self-control is important in order to have a good and fruitful and healthy life. And so the the Christian perspective uh, on self-control isn't necessarily unique in the sense that we believe that self-control, of course, will lead to certain kinds of flourishing. But what the Christian faith does have is not the consequence of self-control, which is not doing certain things. The uniqueness of the Christian faith when it comes to self-control is the reasons why and the power to actually experience that kind of self-control. It's the motivation and the sustaining power of self-control. With all of that said, today we are continuing our summer-long series on the fruit of the Spirit, looking at Galatians 5, specifically looking at the fruit uh, listed uh, in that chapter. We've been doing it all summer, and this week we come to that final aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. Now, next week will be the actual closing of this series, and uh, we'll be looking at the really vital uh, reality of what it means to walk with the Spirit as we desire to grow in Christian character. Uh, But this week, we're going to look at this final aspect of the fruit of the Spirit by looking at uh, what Paul has to say about self-control in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, because I think it actually gives some really helpful and practical considerations for us Um, as we consider what it means to grow in Christian character and specifically why the Christian perspective on self-control is different than all other perspectives on self-control, right? So to understand all of this, let's look at this in three ways. Uh, First, that self-control is a decision, self-control is revealing, and self-control is worship, Okay, so first, self-control is the decision. First, take a look at the way that Paul describes self-control in our passage, uh, specifically there in um, verse 24 of uh, chapter 9. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Now that phrase, quote, goes into strict training, training is actually a translative interpretation of the exact same Greek word that we see in Galatians 5, where it's translated there as self-control. It's the same Greek word. Now, because I care that we are knowledgeable people, uh, there's a reason why you see in Galatians 5 a Greek word being translated self-control, and here in uh, verse 24 as it being described as it goes into strict training. Uh, the reason being, this really has nothing to do with the sermon, but I thought I'd, why not use the opportunity to uh, give you some information. Uh, there are different translative styles and approaches with different Bible translations. So what we're seeing here is what you would call a dynamic equivalent, which means that the translators use terminology in English that kind of gives the same impact that the original readers would have experienced. So they're not being literal, they're kind of interpreting it a little bit for you, which is why a lot of times we read from the NIV version, because the NIV version tends to make things more easily understood, because they've used that translative interpretative uh, method, as opposed to like the English standard translation, which is more literal. Um, That's the reason why you see those two differences. And I draw this out first, because why not? I think it's helpful for us to know that kind of stuff. But more consequentially, 
I want us to see that what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 9 is more than just the ways that athletes go into training in the ways that we tend to think about it, but rather what he has in mind is that spiritual conditioning that produces the kind of self-control that we see in Galatians 5 is similar to what athletes do. That it's a cumulative list of daily decisions that produce the athlete's ability to compete well. It's also a cumulative list of daily decisions that one must do in order to find that same kind of spiritual conditioning. Uh, consider the, uh, the Olympics that we recently saw just wrap up. The Olympics put on display the best of the best in the world, right? I mean, it's mind-boggling uh, how fast some of these people can run, how far they can jump, uh, how much they can lift, how many flips in midair they can do, right? It's, it's, it blows my mind. But how did they get there? Seems to me that as athletes, there's two fundamental requirements for them to be able to do what they do at that kind of caliber, with that kind of talent and ability. First, like Paul notes, uh, the prize is always before them, right? I don't think that one could be a successful Olympian unless the desire for that gold medal wasn't in front of them, like a carrot before a horse, right? It's always driving them to achieve that gold medal. And maybe there are some who possess that drive without the potential for a reward, but I feel pretty confident that the prize and the glory that comes with that prize is pretty close to a universal motivator for most of them. But the second thing, in order for them to reach that prize, everything in their life has to orient around that goal. The food that they eat, the rhythms of their sleep, the workout regimen, and a host of other things come into submission to that goal. And if it doesn't, they will never be able to accomplish what they accomplish. There is this daily, hourly, even minute-by-minute -minute commitment that they have to reach that goal. And now something strikes me about that uh, kind of commitment. You know, when I think about, you know, what it means to lose weight or experience some kind of training, if you've ever been in that season of trying to do those kinds of things, you know that to accomplish those goals, it's never just a one-time big decision. If you're going to accomplish those kinds of goals, instead there's this, this uh, decision-making that needs to happen a thousand times a day, literally a thousand times a day. If we are to be a people of self-control, we will be making a thousand decisions every day that over time create habits and rhythms that at a certain point, they just become natural to us. But at, for a while, they become very, there are very intentional decisions that must be made. Uh, I have a friend who was and continues to be a model, uh, but he's also a pastor. Uh, and as you could imagine, he's in ridiculous shape, like all the time. It can be really hard to, uh, to hang out with him because he doesn't eat carbs or sugar and frankly, that's just not the kind of life that I want to live. Um, but for him, because he's been doing it for 30 plus years, daily decisions about the foods that he eats, he doesn't even get tempted. This blows my mind. Doesn't even get tempted by these kinds of foods. And I have this conversation, um, not only with him, but also with my wife. She's honestly the same way. Like she's had years of healthy decision food making um, that leave her a lot of times craving a salad without salad dressing. Like, for real, she craves a dry salad. 
It's no longer like a, a self-control issue. It's become the norm. It's something she desires, and I'm, <laughs> I'm inspired by it. Self-control is certainly decisions that need to be made at the large scale, but more importantly, they're regular decisions made daily over and over and over again. But again, that's not unique to the Christian faith. Nothing that I just said you couldn't also get from some workout ad or some motivational speaker. Right? That's not unique. What I find interesting is not that self-control is a decision, as Paul's describing, but also what else he describes here. Specifically, that the presence of self-control, or the lack of self-control, is also revealing to us. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Uh, look at Paul's words in uh, verse 27. He says, No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, Paul is making the case that in order for him to experience the kind of self-control of an athlete, there's a submission that needs to occur. He says, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. In other words, his actions reveal that which is master over him. I will find, uh, I've, as I've been thinking about this, I find that that's actually incredibly haunting, but also incredibly clarifying. And what I mean by that is a lack of self-control does not show that, uh, it really does show, rather, that we have submitted to something. And that submission will be made clear through the decisions that we make. Now, this brings to me what I think uh, might be uh, one of the most misquoted verses of the Bible, which is in our passage, uh, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Let me just read that for you. It says this, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, the context of that verse is this idea of resisting temptation, resisting, resisting sin. It's about self-control. Now, the reason why I say this portion of Scripture is often misquoted is usually the way that people interpret it is that God will not give me more than I can handle with the practical assumption that life's circumstances will in some way always be within my control. Now, this is a completely uh, different sermon, but I don't actually think that that's true. In fact, I actually think that God will often give us more than we can handle. And the reason why I think that's the case is because if we can always be in control of life's circumstances, what good, what need do we have of God for God? And so what we're seeing here is not this God won't give me more than I can handle. Rather, what we're seeing here is Paul's description of that when we are facing temptation, God will never leave us without a way out of that temptation. That is the kind of thing that God will never give us more than we can handle temptation and the exit from it. God is seeking those, not who are strong enough to control life, but those that are weak enough to go to him for their strength. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, this is what uh, Paul is reflecting on when God says to him that my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on to say that when I'm weak, I am strong. I mean, this is the idea that we rest upon the grace of God. And so Paul's not making the argument that God will not give us more than we can handle. Rather, 
He is calling us to trust that he will give us a way out of our sin. But what Paul is saying here, ultimately too, isn't so much that God will give us this way out, but the reasons for why God will give us that way out. And this really gets at the heart of why self-control or a lack thereof is very revealing. Look at verse 13. Here's the reason why God always gives us a way out. Paul says that you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. Now we've talked at length over the course of this series about how God proves himself to be faithful. That faithfulness is not in question when it comes to self-control and our resistance to sin. Rather, what comes into question is what we are more committed to than this faithful God in our lack of self-control and in our lack of resistance to temptation. I mean, give you some examples. Think about the ways that we often lack self-control in areas like physical pleasures in life. When we overeat to the point of gluttony, or when we overdrink to the point of drunkenness, when we fail uh, to push against the temptations of lust and sexual immorality, is it not revealing our greater submission to physical pleasure than to a faithful God who gave us that pleasure and yet calls us to use that pleasure in particular kinds of ways? You know, the joys of food and drink and the pleasures of sex are all God-created, God-ordained. And when we trust him as faithful, we will use those pleasures in ways that he deems to be good and right and true. But when we are more committed to the pleasure than to God, then the lack of self-control reveals the extent to which we don't trust him as faithful. Or think about the other ways that we tend to lack self-control. Many, they lack control of their tongue You know, James 3 talks about how the tongue is like a fire, that a world of evil comes from this body part, the tongue, that it corrupts the whole body. I mean, some are quick with their words that cut people down. Others are obsessed with always being right or feeling the need to win every argument or prove that they're smarter than others or constantly are critical naysayers, all of which reveals the way that we don't trust a faithful God, because when we consider how little we know, our lack of wisdom and insight and clarity compared to God, it ought to produce in us a tremendous amount of humility. But because often we lack control of our tongues, we fall into this self-deluded assumption of superiority and are constantly cutting people down, constantly are critical naysayers. For others, maybe there's a lack of control of emotions. Maybe some of us, we are very quick to anger. Others are maybe always focusing on what's negative or they're constantly thinking about negative thinking, never thinking about what is right or true or noble or pure or lovely or admirable, as we're told to do. And to be clear, I don't mean that there aren't those that struggle with real issues of uh, depression, anxiety that's often associated with physiological issues. That's not what I mean. I mean those who are just always negative, always looking to be miserable. I mean, all of this is not trusting in a faithful God that is, again, helping us lead to being, uh, helping us be self-controlled. And there's so many different ways that we tend to lack self-control. 
We spend, we spend too much time on social media, spend too much time playing games, too much spe- time uh, spending money, streaming, entertainment, on and on, so many different areas of our lives. Every place where we lack self-control, there's going to be a revelation of our lack of trust in a faithful God and our submission to something else other than him. And that lack of trust in God and his purpose sends us into these perpetual cycles of lacking self-control. Proverbs 25 makes a really interesting analogy about self-control. It says that a person without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That strikes me. That when self-control is rooted in a faithful God, there's a protection. There's a wall of defense that comes against attack. So when temptation comes, we're able to resist. But when we lack self-control, it's like the walls are torn down. And then we just find ourselves in these constant cycles of self-control because there's no protection against it. uh, Yes, (laughs) protection against the temptation that comes. And this is where Paul's words about not being tempted beyond what we can bear really begin to make sense, that God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but he will also not force us to trust him. The trust in a faithful God is the defense around the city Self-control is this faith in this faithful God. So in the areas of our lives where we lack self-control, the question is not what do we need to do to snap out of this? What do we need to do to create and build up these walls of protection? The question about what's being revealed is that we haven't worshipped God in the way that we should. We haven't trusted him as a faithful God, which is why we also finally need to see that self-control is not just a decision. It's not just revealing in us something that we're more committed to than God. But self-control is also worship. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, All throughout the scriptures, of course, Paul uh, also has been using the terminology of an athlete to describe self-control. And we said uh, that an athlete at their highest level is one who has identified a particular prize that they're going after. Their eyes are set on that prize. And that prize is worthy of all the sacrifice, all the pain, all the commitment required to be at their best. Now, there's another place in the New Testament where we find the same kind of language. In Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews uh, describes a race that we're all running and the perseverance that's needed for us to run that race well. And I want to read to you uh, verses 1 through 3. Right, just sit with this in Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What is going on there? Well, the author is saying, be self-controlled and throw away anything that keeps you from running your race well. But what is the prize that he is telling us motivates our ability to run that race well? Well, the prize is Jesus. I mean, as we run the race, 
marked out for us. He calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of the faith. Isn't that interesting? That we are told here that our our lack of self-control is a lack of trusting in a faithful God. And now here in Hebrews 12, we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter of our faith. Then he says that we ought to look to Jesus for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Here's what's interesting. We're running a race. We're being called to fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're also told here in Hebrews 12 that Jesus had his eyes fixed on a prize for the race that he had before him. And here's, my friends, where the motivation comes from. Here's what strikes me about that idea. We are not told to be self-controlled and to throw off everything that hinders us by looking at how Jesus himself was faithful or because he shows us a good example of how to go about being self-controlled. Instead, we are told to be self-controlled by looking at what Jesus did in his race of self-control. And what was it that Jesus did in his race? Well, Jesus in his race is fully in control of himself in that he goes to the cross in submission to the will of the Father because he trusted the faithfulness of the Father. Jesus had the kind of faith necessary for him to trust what God is leading him into, and so he goes to the cross. And he does so for the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? What was your redemption? It was your salvation. And this is where the Christian perspective on self-control is radically different than all other concepts of self-control. Because other religions and other philosophies will tell us to beat our bodies into submission in order that we would achieve redemption and salvation. But the Christian gospel is that we beat our bodies into into submission because we have already been redeemed and saved by the work of Jesus on the cross. This is why in verse 21 of our passage, Paul says that whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. In all our pursuits of self-control, don't do it to merit God's favor. Do it because you have God's favor, because of what Christ has done on the cross, because of the faithfulness of Jesus. When we fix our eyes on that work, remembering what he has done, that then begins to produce in us this renewed desire and motivation for self-control, because now it's an act of worship. It's not an attempt to earn God's favor in some way. And so, what does it mean? In all that we do, we do it to the glory of God. You know, when I use physical pleasures in the ways that God intends, it's an act of worship. You know, one of the things my my wife often talks about is she will, uh, she loves food that leads her to doxology. uh, And every now and then she'll sit down and she'll eat something so good, she can't help but just worship God. That's a great way to view food, right? Or when we, when we control our tongue or our emotions, it's actually an act of worship to my faithful God when I do so. All while trusting that I am being empowered by the Spirit who is doing this work in me, and like all other aspects of the fruit, I am coming alongside the Spirit of God by cultivating this self-control that he's working in me, all for the glory of God. And so, with all of that, I ask you today to consider, one, where do we maybe lack self-control. And what exactly is that lack of self-control revealing? What have we not been, what have we been more faithful to than God, our faithful God? What have we submitted to instead of the faithfulness of God? What's it revealing? But before we start 
diving in and trying to just muscle through it, how do we now need to look upon Jesus, the faithfulness of our Savior, for the kind of motivation necessary to produce this kind of self-control? How can these areas of our life be acts of worship before God? I pray that the God, Spirit of God reveals that to us. The Spirit of God empowers us to be able to rightly pursue such things and that ultimately all of this would be for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your goodness toward us. God, there are um, so many different ways that we are not faithful to you, so many different ways that we fail. But God, you have been faithful to us even in our unfaithfulness. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and that as a result, Lord, you would, um, by your Spirit, help us to be more and more self-controlled, and may you be glorified through it all. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.